Good morning, church. Thanks for uh, tuning in. I know you've been thanked and welcomed already. Uh, appreciate Sam Ross. I didn't know about the fire emoji thing. So that was a, that was a nice surprise uh, to comment. So Robin, hey Robin, would you be sure and put a lot of fire emojis in the comments just in case nobody else does? <laughs> oh, that to be an encouragement uh, this morning. So, hey, and those of you with pagers or blackberries, be sure and send some kind of emoji as well, right? <laughs> You remember those things? Yeah, that's funny. So, no, appreciate that. Love that new song. Man, love the, uh, the worship band and that new song. I love that, Come Hell or High Water, He is My Anchor. That's awesome. So, that's a great song. All the songs we're singing are great. My question is, do you believe them? We sing them, but do you really believe the words that you're singing? In fact, that's kind of the, the question I want to start with this morning. Is, is there a difference between what you should believe and what you want to believe. Think about that just for a second. Just, is there a difference between what you should believe, what you feel you're supposed to believe, and what you really want to believe? All right, let me give you some examples. So racism obviously is a hot topic right now. What you believe about racism, is it what you should believe? How about homosexuality? Is what you believe about homosexuality what you should believe? Muslims, Buddhists, Jehovah's Witness, Mormons. It's what you believe about these groups. Is it what you should believe about them? What about yourself? It's what you believe about yourself, your identity. Is it what you should believe? What about God? It's what you believe about God, what you should believe about God, about Jesus, his son. What do you believe about Jesus? And is it what you should believe? Is it what you want to believe about Jesus? This morning, we're going to talk about doubt. Doubt is something we all struggle with. Every Christ follower, if they're honest, will say, I struggle with doubt. We don't have all the answers. The existence of God, that's been firmed up in our minds, but how he acts, how he moves, how he intervenes, how he relates to us, how we relate to him, how we serve him, how we honor him, all those questions can cause great doubt in our mind. And so is that okay? Is it okay to doubt God? Is it okay to have questions about God after we've placed faith in him? Well, this morning we're going to look at uh, the story of a man who was a Jesus follower. And yet when it came down to it, he was riddled with doubt. And so we're going to learn some lessons from him. Because one of the things I think is very important for us, first of all, to be honest, that we have doubts. I have doubts. Right? I know God exists. I know Jesus died and rose again. I know that I have abundant and eternal life, but there's so much more involved in following Jesus where I have doubts. And the key is how do we deal with it? In fact, would you be open and honest enough to say that I have some doubts, I have some questions about things? Or even to say that what I should believe is not what I believe. Those don't line up, but I am open <laughs> to consider the question. Well, let's look at John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. This is the story of Jesus has been resurrected. He's appeared to the disciples, all but Thomas. Thomas is not with him, and this is what John writes in verse 24 of chapter 20. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So a lot of questions come out of this whole story of what we've nicknamed him Doubting Thomas. First of all, where was he? The first part of the chapter, Jesus appears to the disciples all but Thomas. He's not there physically with them. He's probably not necessarily with them emotionally, though he's grieving like the other disciples. And he's not there spiritually with them, which is interesting because Obviously, he's going through a time of grief. All the faith and hope he put into Jesus had been dashed when Jesus was crucified. But rather than hanging with the group of disciples he'd lived with for three years as a support group, he left his support group. He felt abandoned by Jesus. And so rather than hanging with a group that might be a, a consolation and encouragement to him, or they at least could commiserate together, he isolates. Now, we, we understand that word in a new way now. We've been encouraged to socially distance, to self-quarantine, if we go out to, to wear a mask. And so rather than staying with a group that could be a help to him, he just decides to self-isolate. Thomas seemingly believed that everything was over, that what he had seen Jesus go through meant that it was the end of his dream, end of his hope. And maybe in some way, even thought an end to what Jesus had promised. And so he's filled with doubt. And when I read this, I just thought, what would cause a man like Thomas, who had seen Jesus feed the 5,000 with just some bread and fish, he'd seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. He saw him heal blind people and lame people. He went way beyond what a human can do. And yet in this instant, he doubts. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead, but now when there's conversation that Jesus has come back from the dead, he doubts this. He doesn't believe what he's hearing. I mean, honestly, from a human perspective, he saw Jesus tortured. He saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus buried. So logically, it doesn't make sense that he would be alive. He had evidence and proof that Jesus was dead. He had not seen any that he was alive. And on top of that, he was grieving. I hope you know grief is a process. There are steps, normal steps, certain steps that we go through in the grieving process. The key is to go through that process, not to stop on one level. That's where further pain and sorrow can be caused, but to move through it, whatever pace you set, but to move through grief. Thomas was perhaps moving through grief, but it seemed like he had stopped because he'd isolated. So in this story, we see that disciples are not people who never doubt. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, it doesn't mean that you never doubt what God is doing or what's going on. I mean, certainly this pandemic has been a test to our beliefs, a test of our faith. True disciples worship, but still may have doubts. They serve, but still may have doubts. This pandemic has maybe caused some of us to doubt the provision of God. 
Christ followers have lost their job or income has been greatly reduced. Christians are suffering economically, so it can cause us to doubt, is God really the one who provides all my needs? Christ followers have died during this pandemic, from this pandemic, so it can cause us to question, does God really protect his own? Does he really watch out for those who follow him? We suffer in many ways. Is, is God really good all the time? Or is there some sin that I can commit that would cause God not to be good in my life? How does he feel about me? Does God hate me because of what I've done? I mean, all these questions just with the reality of life can creep up into our minds and cause us pause. I guess one way to ask this is, are you a Thomas? You've had an experience with Jesus, you've lived with Jesus, you've walked with Jesus, but now something's happened that caused you to doubt if he really is love, if he really does forgive, if he really does redeem. I think all these things are natural. And I would say to you, it's okay. I have doubts too. It's okay to have doubts, but like grieving, we have to move through the process. Hopefully doubt is a motivator to help us find answers, to seek with all of our heart, mind, and soul, to seek the Lord, to seek answers to these questions. We don't just get stuck. Doubt can be a good thing, but it's not a state of mind that we are to consistently live in. But it causes us to ask the right questions. Another possibility, Thomas was just a skeptic. Skepticism was very popular during Jesus' day. As one author wrote, Philip Schaeff wrote this, he gave a presentation on the confession of Thomas. And this is what he said to describe Thomas. He was an honest and earnest inquirer. His heart was anxious and ready to believe, but his understanding demanded evidence, which he embraced with joy as soon as it was, was presented, which we know that story. One author said skepticism was not mere negative doubt, but a positive tendency towards discovering indubitable truth based on incontrovertible evidence. In other words, what we might see as a negative, in Jesus' day and time, skepticism was a positive. They were truly seeking answers. They weren't atheists or agnostic. They were truly seeking answers to find certain truth that was irrefutable, that could not change. This was the heart of the skeptic and perhaps the heart of Thomas. In fact, this is one of the motivations behind why John wrote his gospel, why God led John to write this gospel because it is an argument against skepticism. It is the giving of evidence that would lead a skeptic to believe in the authenticity of Jesus, to believe in the legitimacy of the risen Christ. This is one of the reasons John wrote his gospel. In fact, if you look at the story of Thomas, it addresses four major conditions that were used and are used to lead a skeptic to believe in something. These are conditions of argument. The first one is the rejection of the consensus of majority. We always hear the, the majority is always right. Well, we know that's not true. That's what got the people in Israel in trouble, didn't get to go in the promised land because the majority said we couldn't go. Two said we could, they chose the majority. Here, Thomas is the one, this principle says that even in a room of 500 people, there could be one person smarter than the rest. Thomas felt that was him. 
that he was smarter than the other disciples because he refused to believe. Probabilism says that one thing is more probable than another. So the test to find certainty is through our senses. If we can experience something through our senses, it can lead us to the conclusion that it's probable that Jesus was resurrected or it's probable and tested, which would lead us to irrefutable evidence because we could touch. That's why Thomas said, I want to touch. I don't want to just hear about them. I don't want you to describe them to me. I want to actually lay my hands on them. I want to touch the nail scars. I want to put my hand in his side where the spear went, because if I can do that, I will know, first of all, that he died, and second of all, that he's alive. If I can touch them, then that will be the evidence that I need. That's why he wanted to touch the scars. The next principle is commemorative sign. This is just the understanding that the existence of something by its previous association to something else. For example, we have a saying where there's smoke, there's fire, right? So if you drive down the highway and you see smoke billowing up from a building, though you might not be able to see it, the conclusion is there's a fire, there's something is burning. Or a scar, if you see a scar on someone, you know that that came from a wound. Uh, I have a chicken pox scar right here between my eyes, right on my nose. I was about, I don't know, five or six years old. Uh, and my mom was trying to get my temperature down and she took a washcloth to my head and knocked off the chicken pox. So I've had a scar here all these years. Now you can't see the chicken pox anymore, but you can see the scar and you know something happened there, right? Because of its association to something previous, you know, can conclude what happened. This is what Thomas was looking for. Now, they rejected indicative signs to say that the body has a soul. They wouldn't believe that because there's no evidence of a soul. So in order to lead a skeptic to belief, they had to have hard, concrete evidence. There had to be confirmation of death and proof of a resurrection. This is why Thomas is seeking to touch the wounds and the scars of Jesus. The fourth principle is just the nature of God demonstrated. Skeptics basically just delayed judgment whether God was real or not because they didn't see him as self-evident or plainly manifest. In the mind of a skeptic, he would say, if I can actually see and touch the evidence, then I can make a conclusion. Well, they didn't realize who Jesus was, that he was God. And so in their mind, unless I can see and touch God, I don't believe he's real. Well, that was a little bit easier for that to be demonstrated in Jesus's time when he was on the earth. This is the difficulty of us sharing our faith with others because it does take faith to believe in Jesus Christ, his death, resurrection, that he is the son of God. We've not seen him or touched him, though he's made himself evident. This is a part of our argument to the truth of who Jesus is. So it's possible that Thomas was a skeptic, but Regardless, his mind was filled with doubt. He had seen Jesus, learned from Jesus, watched Jesus, but he's still filled with doubt. And his mind that was filled with doubt led to unreasonable demands. And this is where we have to be careful. When doubt consumes our life, we can start to make unreasonable demands on people, even on God, to remove that doubt. We take faith out of the equation. We studied the life of Gideon a couple of weeks ago where God called him to leave an, lead an army against the Midianites. In order to test God, Gideon said, okay, God, I, I wanna make sure this is from you. So I'm gonna put out uh, some fleece. And what I would ask you to do is to make the fleece wet and all the ground around it dry. So God did that and he said, all right, I just wanna make double sure this is from you. 
so this time I'm going to put the fleece out and I want you to make it dry and all the ground around it wet. And so God did that again, very patient, answered Gideon's request to prove that this was God's leadership. Again, that's not a great way to follow God. I don't suggest that, that we start putting out fleece every time we feel God calls us to do something. But this is where Thomas was. This was his mind. And he makes unrealistic demands because of his skepticism, because of his doubt. And that can happen to us too, right? We, we can enjoy worshiping and then some of us are longing to be back together, to worship together. But skepticism and doubt can cause us to very easily worship only out of sense of obligation rather than out of sense of love. We used to rejoice in what God was doing in our life, rejoice in our relationship to Jesus Christ, but now we've become discouraged because of what's happened in our world, because of the pandemic, because how we've been affected, because of the chaos in our own country. Doubt can cause us... Remember, we used to share our faith with others. We were so excited to tell others about what Jesus has done. Now we're just cynical. This is what remaining in a state of doubt can lead to. If there's never any desire for a conclusion or an answer to our questions. And what's interesting about this story is even the disciples' testimony was not enough to convince Thomas. That's... That's very curious to me because he'd walked with these guys for three years. He knew them. He trusted them. He knew them inside and out. Yet when they said, we have seen the Lord, he did not believe them. Again, showing the state of his doubt, the state of his grief. So why not? Was it because he didn't see any evidence in their life that they had seen the Lord? Surely if they had seen the risen Jesus, they would be super excited about it. You could just tell on their countenance. They couldn't stop talking about it. Maybe there just wasn't enough evidence for him to see the change because when you encounter Jesus, you change. Maybe that was the reason. Maybe he just wanted another miracle. Hey, I need to see him feed another 5,000, which is just a few fish and some bread. I need to see him cause another blind person to see, then I'll believe. And what's interesting, he didn't even say, let me just look into his eyes. If I can just hear his voice again, then I will believe. He said, no, I've got, I've got to see him and touch him. Which kind of leads to another question. Why did Jesus' body still have scars? His resurrected body, why did he still have scars? Was it simply so that he could encounter Thomas and Thomas would believe because that's what it took for Thomas to believe? What about us? Why is this important for us to know? Well, for one thing, those scars were evidence that Jesus had won the battle. The battle raging between good and evil. Jesus gave us victory over sin and death. Those wounds remind us that Jesus fought the battle for us and he came out victorious so that we can live. It was also evidence, not only for Thomas, but for us, that this risen Savior was not just a fantasy. He wasn't a hallucination. He wasn't a ghost. He was real flesh and blood. He was the real Savior. It's also a reminder that Jesus experienced the same pain, the same rejection, the same sorrow that I experience. As the Bible tells us, we know that when we cry out to our high priest with with all of our words of our pain and our suffering, 
that we don't cry out to one who's never suffered, that Jesus himself suffered. He knows what it's like to be rejected by the people he cared for, by the people that he loved. He, he knows what it's like to be abandoned by his close circle. He knows what it's like to have his father turn his back on him. The Bible says he was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, yet he is without sin. So when we cry out to God, even when we can't put it into words, he gets us. He understands us and he cares. For Thomas, this was a certificate of authenticity. You know, if you go buy an antique and you want to want proof that it's authentic, that it's real, you buy an original painting and you want proof that it's real, you'll get a certificate of authenticity indicating this is the real thing. Well, for Thomas, that's what Jesus' scars were. For us, when the Bible says, by his wounds we are healed, this is that certificate of authenticity that Jesus really was alive. And I think that's what people are looking for. I think that's what the world is gauging the church by. Are you people real? Are you authentic? You say that you love God. You say you believe in God, but does it show in your actions? You say you're a Christ follower, but do you have doubts? And are you honest about it? Are you trying to act like you have it all figured out? You try to show the world that you have it all together and everything's so simple and plain to you. Are you honest about your doubts? I hope that you're honest. Does your life match what you say? Or does it match what, how you say you live? Again, we're good at wearing these masks. We've been asked to wear masks through this pandemic, but we've been wearing masks for a long, long time, covering up what's really going on in our lives. Are you willing to be open and honest about your concerns? What about this question? If you told Thomas that you had seen the Lord, would he have believed you? Is there enough evidence in your life to back up what you say? Will an unbelieving world believe that God is love, that Jesus is real when you tell them, or will they continue to doubt like Thomas did? And what about our church? We claim to be the people of God, the people of the gospel. We proclaim we have seen the Lord. But does it seem to the world that we're more concerned about our preferences, about our way, rather than putting others' needs in front of ours? The world hears us worship and they see us gather on Sunday morning, but do they hear more about what we prefer rather than the heart of God that comes out in our lives, in our conversations? Does the world hear us say, hey, we want you to know that God loves you, but he actually loves us more because we're in the church. Does the world have difficulty taking a church seriously that doesn't take a difficult stand, that always seems to be smiling and hap, hap, happy all the time, that says we love people, but we love them at a distance, especially the ones with scars? Does the world have difficulty listening to a church that never stands for anything? That was tested for us at First Burleson this past Friday. You probably know that there was a protest right across the street from our church 
pro protesting the death of George Floyd and racism and injustice and prejudice in our world. And we got a lot of texts and emails and posts about some criticizing that First Baptist would sponsor a protest. And we didn't sponsor the protest. We didn't initiate the protest, but we supported it. We were there. We were there in numbers. We were there to minister. We got to minister to people, some who were dehydrated. We were there for a positive. We stood with police officers, Burleson police officers, in standing together against prejudice and racism and injustice. I'm so grateful for Chief Billy Cordell, who leads our police force here in Burleson, a believer in Christ, a strong man of the faith who's willing to take a stand. So it was a beautiful sight. I don't know, there were 500 people gathered right across the street from our church, and we were there representing as well the church, standing for injustice, against injustice, standing against racism and against prejudice. And I just want you to know something. As long as I am pastor of First Baptist Burleson, we will always take a stand against injustice. Whatever it costs us, however much pressure people put on us, however unpopular it might be, we will stand against the injustice, especially the ones that are brought right to our front door. We will continue to stand against domestic violence that we've been doing for a year or so now. We'll continue to fight against child sexual abuse. We'll fight against abortion. We will take a stand. We will not be silent as a church. I hope you know that. And if you don't like that, that's going to be a big problem for you, right? Because this is what God has called us to do. We are the instrument where God will be a father to the fatherless. He will use us to be hope to the hopeless. He will use us to help the hurting, to give life to the dead. This is what we do as a church, to reach those who are far from God, to fight against the injustice in our world, and to take a stand. And we will do it in the power of Jesus' name and the power of the Holy Spirit of God, but we will stand. We will not be quiet. We will not shrink back, and we will not be afraid. We will enter the danger, I promise. Because we're a church that says to people, we want you to come. We want you here. We want you to join with us. We want First Burleson to be a, a great place to make friends. So we can't turn around and say, but my friend card is full. Hey, I want you here, but I don't want to get to know you. I want you to come worship with us, but I don't want to be your friend. That's hypocrisy. That's evil. We will not be that kind of church. We will share the love of Christ with everyone. Everyone. No boundaries and no barriers. We will be the church that God has designed us to be. So in our story, Thomas did not believe the testimony of his fellow disciples. And so Jesus' response to that he gave Thomas a personal encounter, a personal experience and a personal call that he didn't give to the other disciples. But in Thomas's doubt, Jesus answered him, just as he will you. And he makes the statement at the end of this story, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's a, man, what a statement. That is a powerful statement. We're going to look at that next week. So come back. 
So the challenge I have for you today, be honest about your doubts. Be honest that you have questions about God and what he's doing. Maybe this pandemic has forced some questions into your life. Be honest about them and ask the question. Talk to someone about your doubts. Don't linger in them. Deal with them. It's okay that you have them. Just don't remain there forever. Find someone. Talk to them about them. Hey, in just a minute, I'm going to pray. Then our worship team is going to lead us in another song. And then for our benediction today, uh, we're very blessed to have Ariel Irizarry here with us. If you don't know Ariel, I've known Ariel, I know him long before I got to Burleson. But he is here in town. He was pastor of Casa de Promesa, which, you know, they used to meet here on our campus. And then he was instrumental in that ministry becoming the Spanish ministry of First Baptist Burleson. And now Jonathan Colon is the pastor there and done a fantastic job. But Ariel was instrumental in setting all that up. That was his vision, his dream, and it's been great to be a part of that. And now he is the leader of Lifeway Espanol. God took him to Nashville to lead the nation through Lifeway and impact the world. So we're grateful for what God has done in his life here and what he's continued to do through him. And we're grateful. He's a great friend, a great minister of the gospel, and he's going to lead our benediction. So we're grateful to have him. It's good to see you, man. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing, and then Ariel will come and close it out. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, we know that it is there. Thank you for the evidence that you've given us that you exist, that you are real. God, we love you. And you've given us a voice. May our voice never grow silent. You've given us a platform. May we take advantage of it. You've given us strength and power to push back the darkness. And there is darkness all around. There is racism all around. There is injustice all around. There is evil all around. But you said that nothing will stop the the church, not even the gates of hell. Come hell or high water, you are our anchor. You are our fortress. You are the sword of truth. And today as your church, at First Burleson, we stand on your truth. And we promote it. And we will fight for it. And we will share it to all those around us. Because we know and believe and have experienced that you are love. That you sent your son to die for the world. We believe the gospel is for all people of all color, of all nations, of all backgrounds, of all philosophies. And we stand on this truth. God, I pray that you would continue to use First Baptist Burleson as the voice of love and the voice of truth to the entire world. Thank you that through technology, you've given us an opportunity to impact the entire world. We will not shrink back. We will not grow silent. We will not be afraid. We will spread your peace to the world. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen.